where we left off last time, but actually we're going to continue uh, and start with the same passage we read last time. I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid them, hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, and suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside him. Now Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill, from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers and sisters, Scripture had to be fulfilled, in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Jesus, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number in our ministry. With the payment he received for his wickedness, he was what appealed. There he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called the, that field in their language, Akeldama, which is field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it. And may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they nominated two men, Joseph, called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic 
Sometimes has attended and sometimes has not uh, over the years before that. There, there's a pretty good crowd here. Bad weather, and that's a little bit less than the crowd. There are some folks that are always there. It doesn't matter what the weather is. And then you've got, you know, kids, maybe maybe your, your kids that you're raising uh, or your friends that you kind of drag out there. And you, uh, I guess we'll go, uh, we'll go out to If they're going to have food at the Legion, well, I guess we'll go and then we'll there are some people that you don't ever have to tell them. There are some people who would not miss it for the world. Those who ha- have received a revelation, so to speak, they get it. Many that I see out there every year, in tears before it even starts, are those who have been affected with a personal connection someone who fell in battle. If you've served and you've lost friends, or if you have family members who fell in battle, then Memorial Day takes on a whole different meaning for you. 
because the, the loss, the void of that comrade, maybe of a family member, who gave all, that's never filled. That doesn't go away. Their sacrifice has impacted you, and nobody has to tell you to come to remember. Nobody has to tell you to stand when the flag passes by, to take off your cap out of respect, to be quiet during the national anthem. Nobody has to tell you that. It's in you, and it comes out. That same dynamic is exactly what we're seeing in the book of Acts. When people, when people encounter the living God, they are changed by that encounter. Far too often as Christ followers today, we just go to church. i got to tell you, I've been a pastor now for, what, 16 years, something like that. That's right, math is my strong suit. I've been a Christ follower for a whole lot of years. And I've seen a lot of Christians just go to church. And I've never seen anybody change like this guy. The old saying is that, uh, Keith Green used to say this a lot, going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger. Any more than sitting in your garage makes you a car. chapter 1 in a passage that I used to just pass over and, and, and kind of blow off. If I'm reading through it, I just kind of skip it like I used to skip genealogy. Move on to the more exciting stuff in chapter 2. The reality is this. Those who grasp the reality of Christ are eager to live for Him. Pretty simple, but really deep in reality. Those who grasp the reality of Christ are eager to live for Him. Say it with me. Those who grasp the reality of Christ are eager to live with Him, eager to obey Him, eager to serve Him, eager to reflect Him. We get excited when we really know Him. And we're just doing religion. Then it becomes a job. Check this. Maybe it's something we believe fervently. But when it's the core of our reality, chapter 6. We're going to look at the first eight verses there. In this passage, Isaiah 
recounts for us the details of a vision he receives from the Lord. He encounters God, and he sees God in a real, personal, immediate way like he never has before. Now, bear in mind, this is the prophet. And it's, he's a prophet of Israel. He has been raised going to the, to the tabernacle, to the temple, raised in worship. Every part of their existence is rooted in, in the Lord. It's found in Him. Their laws as a nation are found in Him. And Isaiah here has a different sort of an encounter. And I want you to watch what happens. Watch his response. He begins in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord that by itself should be like a, a, a hammer on a gong. I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of His robe filled the temple. That's a symbol of His glory, of His majesty. Above Him were seraphim, each with six wings. Now, if you're not familiar with the term seraphim, those are angels. But that, that name, Seraphim, specifically means the burning one. So picture these unbelievable beings created higher than we are, whose nature is like fire. Above him were Seraphim, each with six wings. Not quite like you see in a lot of the storybooks. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. See the humility here in their covering. And with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. In Hebrew, the repetition of holy here is very much like it would be in English, but perhaps with more power. It's repeated add gravity, fullness, to emphasize it. As these angels, burning ones, I, mean, I don't know if you've ever seen a six-winged, fiery creature other than in a movie, but that's kind of mind-blowing. And they're so humbled in the presence of God that they're covering their feet and their faces and crying out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. Notice in verse 4, the effect of their worship. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke, while the, uh, while the robe is a symbol of His majesty, His glory in that sense. The smoke is representative of His manifest glory, the Shekinah glory. Woe to me. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Isaiah recognizes a sinful man. He recognizes that a sinful man from a sinful people cannot stand before a holy God and ruin and a dead man. But something powerful happens in the next few verses. Verse 6. 
the burning angel, right? Seraphim burning one. Holy angel. No sin. Perfect. Created above us. And yet, as he took the, the coal from the altar, this fire angel had to use tongs to get it. Live coal in his hand. He had taken the tongs from the altar and worshipped before God. With this coal, he touched my mouth just for a second. He said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Isaiah couldn't fix the sin problem. So God had his angel bring God's own glory to him to take away his sin. Your guilt has been taken away by God. Your sin atoned for by God. And in verse 8 we see Isaiah's response. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And can't you just hear him responding? And I said, Here am I, send me. somebody to go and tell, he's the first one online. He's ready to jump up. Please, let me tell them. Let me tell the people. Now the message he has to bring isn't necessarily good news for them. The excitement that Isaiah feels is because it's no longer just the God that I heard about. It's not the God that my father taught me about. It's not the God I learned about at the temple and we go through all the motions of religion about He's my God. He's real. He is ultimate reality. And nothing that I could possibly experience is nearly as important or as real as He is. Those who grasp the reality of Christ will be the older Same thing happens to Paul in Acts chapter 9. You don't necessarily have to turn there, but in Acts chapter 9 we see Paul's conversion. He's been persecuting the church. His zeal for the Lord is called Saul here in, in uh, Palestine, but his Roman name is Paul. And as Saul is persecuting the church, he's actually presiding over, holding the coats for the people who stoned Stephen, the first martyr of the church, in chapter 6. By chapter 9, he's on his way to go persecute more, to seek them out. He's got the orders in his hand, and he's going. interesting what happens when people encounter Jesus or encounter the Lord. You can't look upon God and not die. 
notice as he has this vision, he says, I saw the Lord. There's no description of him actually seeing God himself, but he sees the Lord seated on the throne, and he sees the, the, the train of his robe, and he sees the presence of the Lord in this vision. Paul, when Jesus shows up, he knocks him off his donkey. He knocks him down and strikes him blind. Let me suggest to you, just a little side note. We, we often talk about these emotional experiences that people have when they get saved. Some people do. I, I think maybe that's not the majority. For sure, that's not part of being saved. But a lot of times we do have these emotional anything to do with Jesus. So, I like the Eagles, but they ain't saving anybody. You can be overwhelmed by emotion in any number of, of situations. I was watching a commercial the other day. <laughs> My wife and children make fun of me, but it happens. You laugh, so I'm amazed. It's great. Now, the reality of this is, emotions aren't the point. But if you think you're a Christian and you haven't been knocked down and blinded by Christ, you've missed something. If you think you've encountered God and you can still stand upright and think you have something to offer, think you're a pretty good person, then you have missed it. The reality of Christ knocks us down. And it blinds us to everything until we see Him rightly. our sinfulness before we can understand God's grace. If I'm still looking at all of the hurts in my life and all of the, 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 the ways that people have let me down, I'm not seeing Him. I'm seeing them. I'm seeing me. Isaiah doesn't care about that. Paul doesn't care about that. In Acts chapter 1, Peter and the disciples that are gathered with him, they no longer care about that. Have you noticed that this is the same Peter that just a few chapters back in the book of Luke, volume 1 of this story, denied Christ and everybody knew it. And all of them in some way let him down. All of them deserted him in his time of need. Peter flat out denied he knew it. Just to emphasize it, he made a point of swearing about it just to make sure everybody knew, I don't know him. Don't you think that Peter would be just overwhelmed with the shame and the guilt of how he let God down? forgiven isn't the same as feeling forgiven. Amen? Sometimes we can receive the grace of God and still hang on to our shame, still hang on to our guilt and our anger and our fear and all of the things that plague us. 
uh, Luke writes for us that this was all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. The point being that this is the continuation. This isn't like a separate story. Jesus did this, and now the church does this. Jesus is still doing through his church. He is still doing and teaching through his church. They saw, as he recorded in the gospel, his life. They walked with him. They were with him through the journey. They watched him not have a place to sleep. And he wasn't bothered by it. They watched him persecuted. And he wasn't bothered by it. All of these things were just more opportunities to do the Father's will. And he continued to live his life that way. Always facing temptation. Never sinning. They recognized the difference there. They watched his death. They saw the suffering of Messiah. They didn't get it. Later he explained it. Then they got it. As he opened their eyes to understand the scriptures that had always been there. Telling of how the Messiah must suffer and die to pay for our sins. They watched that death. They saw him. They saw him rise from the dead. Not literally, they weren't there with him in the moment. But they saw him alive. Luke records for us that after he had had, uh, come back, he gave them, in verse 3, many convincing proofs that he was alive. He presented himself to them. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days. And in those 40 days, he did the same thing he did before his suffering. his message from the beginning. Repent. The kingdom is near. You will stand before God giving you a chance to be ready. It can either be a joyous occasion or it can be eternal damnation. That's a pretty easy choice you would think. Yet the majority of us don't make it. They watched his life. They watched his death. They watched his resurrection. And even here in Acts we see a a retelling of how the book of Luke ended with his ascension. He's talking to them. I don't know if this has ever happened to you in a conversation with somebody. It's never happened to me. I've never had this happen. They're talking to him, and he begins to, we might say, levitate. He just starts going off. Does that seem weird? That's not something that I've ever encountered. If you have, tell me about it afterwards. They saw him. With their own eyes, they watched him do what all of us right now are thinking. That's incredible. When I say incredible, I don't mean really cool. I mean, I can't even believe it. I can't process it. The world will shut down the miraculous parts of the scriptures. But these folks saw it with their own eyes. You know what that means? When you saw it with your own eyes, you were actually there and encountered it? It means none of the intellectual arguments that the naysayers have has any effect on you. Last week I mentioned Buddy the Elf. It's like that. You can declare that there's no Santa all you want, but Buddy knows because he was with him. Not only that, 
They believed what he said. While he was eating with them in verse 4, he gave this command. Don't leave Jerusalem. Wait for the gift my father promised. Don't leave. Wait. Why? Because John did this baptism of identification with repentance, right? It's physical baptism. You're going and you're, and you're actually doing something. But what's about to happen to you, the gift that my father promised, is like that. It's like it in that you were immersed in the water with John. But what you're about to be immersed in, next level stuff. You are about to be immersed in the person of God. God Himself. Not water. You're going to be completely immersed in the Holy Spirit. They believed Him. Why'd they believe Him? Because they had seen what He did. They had seen all that He had done evidence led to faith. We need to recognize, we all need to recognize that the Scriptures never, not one time ever, call us to a blind faith. They don't say, believe without reason. In fact, Isaiah says, the Lord says through Isaiah, come, let's reason together. Wrestle this out. He named his people Israel. He changed Jacob's name to Israel. What does that mean? He's wrestled with God. He wants us to wrestle, to grapple with the hard things, to ask the hard questions. God's not afraid of the questions. He holds all reality. Because they had seen, they believed, and they believed when he said, wait here, to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. They believed in verse 7 when he said, it's not for you to know the times or dates. Now before they would have balked at this. We see them kind of balking throughout the, the Gospels. But not anymore. Now when he says, it's not for you to know, they're like, cool. Whatever you say, Lord. I'm in. I've seen enough. They believed him when he said it's not for you to know the times or dates that the Father is set by his own authority. They don't question that the Father is going to do what he's going to do. They don't question that the kingdom will be restored. That Jesus will do what Messiah came to do. But the timeline isn't theirs. They believed him in verse 8 when he said you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. They might be wondering, what does that mean? I don't know. But he said it. So I believe it. Let's go wait for it. They believed when he left them with the job of being witnesses in Jerusalem and the surrounding area and even to the ends of the earth. They believed what he said. They saw what he had done. They believed what he had said. As a result of that, because they had seen, because they had believed, they were eager to obey and serve. To obey and serve. They saw what he had done, they believed what he had said, they were eager to obey and serve. Notice what happens. Right after he says these things, okay, so now we're getting, we've gone through the, the, the background of the first part of the chapter. Now in verse 12, we see this eagerness to obey and serve. 
They believed what he said. Don't leave Jerusalem. Wait for the gift. We've got a job for you. Notice in verse 12, then the apostles did what? They returned to Jerusalem. They're, they're out somewhere near Bethany, uh, the Mount of Olives. It's their normal hangout place. They have a room rented in Jerusalem. I don't know how that works. I don't know if it's the same. It's an upstairs apartment of some sort. I don't know if it's the same upper room they had the Last Supper in. Maybe they developed a connection with this person. Don't know. It doesn't say. But it does say they go back to Jerusalem. They're staying in this upstairs room. The distance is about the amount of walking that was legal on the Sabbath without dishonoring God. They returned to Jerusalem. Because he told them to. They were eager to obey. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were listed. It was all but the one who betrayed them. And notice what happens. Peter begins... Not just saying, okay, let's twiddle our thumbs. They're constantly praying. Constantly praying. Constantly praying. And as they're constantly praying, doing all of these things, Peter says, hey, we got to replace Judas. Now, why does he say that? Because he's ready to get to work. Jesus said we, that he was going to send the Holy Spirit, and he said we we're going to be witnesses. So we better get ready to be witnesses. They were eager to obey and serve. They returned to Jerusalem to wait. They got busy getting ready. Notice this. They acknowledged the ugly truth and moved on. They acknowledged the ugly truth and moved on. Notice, they don't, they don't run from talking about Judas. They didn't hide from it. They didn't hide from his betrayal. They didn't hide from the fact that he was an insider, part of their group, part of their, their inner circle. Notice they also didn't dwell on it. Here's what Peter says, verse 16. Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He says the painful part, he was one of our number in our ministry. Now, it's at a time like this that my imagination starts to, to walk into it. I start to sort of visualize what Peter would have been feeling like. How might he have responded? We know Peter is a pretty emotional guy. He responds uh, pretty harshly in a lot of situations. He's the first to open his mouth. He's the first to jump out of the boat to walk on water. He's the first to jump out of the boat to swim back to shore on another occasion. He says the right things boldly. He says the wrong things just as boldly. Peter is one of those personalities that feels
spot because Judas was wicked. So we're not, that will just remind us of Judas. He didn't say we want to commemorate Judas and, and we're so sorry and sad we want to keep dwelling. No, it doesn't matter whether it's good or bad, it's done. We're moving forward. We acknowledge the ugly truth and moved on. And one of our ministries is 20 for St. Peter. Written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Come back to that in a few moments. Notice this also. Not only did they move on, they prepared for the work to come. They prepared for the work to come. Because they had seen and believed Jesus, because they grasped the reality their eagerness, their excitement to act on it, to do something, was a lot like what we see from Isaiah, a lot like what we see from Paul later on. They want to move, they want to do something, but the past still haunts them. They acknowledge that ugly truth, and they press on, and they press on knowing that God, that God has a plan for them, that Christ has a job for them, that there is a witness for them to bear. They're going to be sent. They don't have the power yet, so they have to obey in the waiting. Because, just like Isaiah, they want they want to go. Let me go tell everybody. There's no time. Just wait. Stay. It'll come. We'll, we'll handle this together. I'll give you the Holy Spirit. He'll power. They're prepared for the job. They focused on getting a replacement to serve with them in the job. That, that witnessing job. Notice he saw it as a must, a requirement. Verse 21, Therefore it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us. It's necessary. And it has to be somebody that was here the whole time, beginning from John's baptism, Right up to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. It can't be somebody like Luke. Luke isn't even here yet. But Luke comes in. He becomes a believer. becomes convinced. He travels with Paul. He writes these Gospels. He's not even on the scene yet. It can't be somebody who was converted later in the ministry. It can't be somebody who has believed since the resurrection. It has to be somebody who has been there since the baptism has seen it all, has walked along with us, has gone through the hard, has gone through the good, and has been faithful and can bear witness, I saw it myself. It's necessary. They have to have been here. Why? For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. He's focused on the job Jesus gave them going to be my witnesses. So hey, if, if that's the case, if we're waiting for him to send us out, let's be ready. Let's be sitting at the stoplight, revving our engines, ready to go. When it turns green, we're off. We're going. We're done. We're not, not messing around here. We are ready for launch. They prepared for the work to come. Now this preparation was fostered by this next Thing we need to observe. They knew and applied the scriptures. They knew and applied.
applied the Scriptures. If they had not known the Scriptures, they would not be able to apply them. If they had not applied them, they would not have been able to prepare in the same way. It's interesting. The two Psalms that Peter refers to, uh, Psalm 69 and Psalm 109, they're, they're not the same Psalms. And they're not specifically, as you read those Psalms, they're not talking about Judas as you and I would read it. But Peter, because these Psalms are already in him, and without doubt, those who are with him would recognize them as what they are. He's talking about the Scriptures. They don't have the chapters and verses that we have now. But as he's reading in his mind, as he's recounting these Psalms, there are a couple of particular verses that, that David writes. And as David's writing them, he's writing them about his enemies at the time. Peter recognizes that the Holy Spirit was speaking through David long ago. Not, not like they're going to see in, in chapter 2, where the Holy Spirit comes and lives in people. But he came, he spoke through David, as David said, when my enemy is coming, Lord, let his place be deserted, let there be nobody to take his place, judge him harshly, Father, may he be removed from his position of power. And then, later in, in uh, Psalm 69, he says, but may there be somebody to replace him. May someone else step up and take his place of leadership. Again, speaking of his enemy at the time. Peter's able to apply those by the Spirit to the situation because the Word was already in him. You have to study the Word to be able to apply the Word. Because they knew the Scriptures, they could apply them to the situation. Next, see this. They focused on the mission, not the credit. They focused on the mission, not the credit. Notice what happens here. We've got two guys. Just imagine, you know, we grab two people here. I'm going to say, well, Shelly and Amanda are going to have to come up here. And, you know, see you looking at me. And we're going to decide between the two of them here in front of everybody. We're going to make a decision which of them is going to be in charge. Right? Now, as soon as we do that, Amanda says, please put Shelly in charge. Even in an illustration, I could see her going, Some of us in the room might think, well, wait a minute. Why not me? Why those two? Am I not good enough? Or might be thinking, you know, I know something about them that you don't know. You don't know the whole truth about their speaking. In fact, when we choose them, if we come up here and we put Amanda in charge, she could walk about it. Right? Shelly might be thinking, wait a minute, why am I not in charge? You know, I, I'm, even though we look the same age, I'm a little older. I should be in charge. I've got more experience. I've got this. I've got that. She doesn't even want to be in charge. Why is she in charge? But we don't see any of that here, actually. Notice what happens. Have I made you feel uncomfortable enough yet? So, having stood up before the people, Peter brings up the 
this idea. Verse 21, they nominated two men. Joseph, called Barsabbas, also known as Justice. He's got a lot of nicknames. And Matthias. Then they prayed. So they got this nomination. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry that you have left to go to Then they cast a lot. A lot of them died. So he was added to the 11 apostles. But, but there's no record of Joseph kicking the ground. That was my chance. There's no jealousy. Now, to be sure, these are human people with human emotions. So to think that there was no jealousy, jealousy among the disciples is kind of unrealistic. As a temptation. The thoughts would come It doesn't matter whose idea it was. It doesn't matter who gets to stand in front. It doesn't matter who's in charge. What matters is, are we doing what Christ has required us to do? There's no dissension when Matthias was chosen over Joseph. What mattered was serving Christ together, not who got what position or who got more recognition. Although we had more of that in the church today. I, I say that because I know <laughs> some of you come from long histories and church backgrounds. I've talked to some of them. And one of the things that kept you out of church for a lot of a lot of years, perhaps, is because of all the bickering and infighting and backstabbing and jealousy. Uh, but I wanted blue carpet and I wanted brown carpet. All kinds of different things that, that, that divide. Those things only happen when we take our eyes off the mission. If it's mission first, then the personnel accomplishing the mission becomes a much smaller value. That's what's happening here. Their eyes are focused on the mission. We haven't had a lot of dissension in our church over the over history. Not that we haven't had any. We've had some, but, but we haven't had a lot. Why? Why? Is it because we're better than other people? Yeah, of course we are. <laughs> right. Partly because as a young church, especially early on, Some of the same problems that every other, if I can say, institutional church. Once you get established and bigger and bigger, you start to struggle. We're going to see that in the book of Acts as well. We start to get our eyes off of him, off of the mission, and onto the stuff down here. Something's going on. And then we get the jealousy and the dissension and the woe is me, poor, poor me, why can't I get more recognition? All that kind of stuff. It happens in the book of Acts. It happens in every group of people that loses sight of the mission. May that never be a defining characteristic of our church. Notice also, they relied on God, not their own expectations. They relied on God, not their own expectations. 
you can bank on the fact that as humans, with emotions, with opinions, the gathered disciples had a variety of opinions and thoughts about who should take Judas' place. They set aside their opinions to see God's choice. Now, they may have had some debate as they nominated the two. Somehow, they got it down to two. It seems incredibly unlikely, and when I say incredibly, I mean don't believe it, unlikely, that everybody just unanimously said, what about doing that? Let's put them out there. But somehow, they nominated these two. You've been in enough groups, if there are more than three of you, you've got probably five opinions, right? So in this big group of 120 people, probably there were a bunch of opinions. A lot of, of their own expectations. Even when it gets down to the two. You got, you got the, the pro-Joseph guys, you got the pro-Matthias guys, you know, you got your like in The Bachelor where Vegas was giving the betting lines with it. You know, everybody's trying to figure out who's going to be the one. Who's going to get the rope? That was just for you, by the way. But they stopped caring. They had their own expectations. But rather than fighting for their own Obviously, Joseph and Matthias were reputable men, or they wouldn't have been the ones nominated. They were, uh, all of these who are here are committed. They're willing to suffer and sacrifice. Lord, you know. You know these two? You know us. So, Father, show us which one. They cast the lots, and God guided the lots to fall that Matthias was selected. They did. They had it. They relied on God, not their own expectations. Lastly, notice, they preferred God's will to their own. They preferred God's will to their own. In other words, they set aside what they wanted because they wanted what God wanted more than they wanted what they wanted. They had their own preferences. They had their own will. They said, you know what? I, I want Jesus to be happy more than I want me to be happy. So if I'm going to live to please Him, because He died for me, I want to live for Him. Whatever my agenda was, it just doesn't even matter anymore. Each of these disciples had a life. Every person here, their families, plans, dreams. Once they un fully understood the reality of Christ, none of that mattered anymore. Whatever they used to value took a back seat to the precious treasure of Christ. So their will became less desirable to them than His will. This is why Paul would later say, for him to live is Christ. It's also why when you see the 
these things. We see this all come together. When, when we grasp the reality of that, then we're eager. We become eager to live for Him. Paul, in, in 2 Corinthians 5, takes this perspective that because we know Him, because we, unlike everybody else in the world, God loved us so much that He sent His Son to take our sin away so that anyone who believes can have eternal life. Because we get it. We know what it means to fear God. We are committed and passionate about turning others to Him. We have been reconciled. And we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. question then for us as we reflect on this is what's my response to the reality of that? What's yours? Does it look like this? You now have an example in a passage that you probably didn't care about before. Because I didn't. But you now have an example of what it means to respond to the living Christ when you get it, when you get this reality, each of these people, as they set aside their preferences, set aside their fears, they lived a new life. No longer in control of their own life. They lived for Him. driving the bus is better than him. Lord of Lord, save me. Not just a little bit. Not just on Sunday morning, but all of me, Lord. Every part of me. I surrender all to you. Do what you want to. Your will, not my will. I just want to be yours. If you come to that place and made that decision, the Bible calls that
contrast the reality of Christ and his gospel. Like Isaiah and Paul and those gathered with Peter in Jerusalem, when we get it, it changes us. It moves us. It excites us. When we get it, obedience isn't a chore. It becomes a joyous privilege. The better we grasp the reality of Christ, the more natural trusting Him becomes. The better we grasp the reality of Christ, the more natural reflecting that reality becomes. The better we grasp the reality of Christ, the more eager, the more zealous, fervent we become living. Father in heaven, I pray that you today would move in us. Father, I know that when we're together like this, surrendered themselves to you. I pray for them specifically, Lord. That you would break them however you need to. Father, I recognize also that there are many of us who are in a relationship with you that's saved and children. We still feel 